Welcome to another episode of Consumer DP Podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, with Billy Joel's Pressure Fading Out. In the background here on episode 138 on uh, November 30th, 2023, an announcement for all the listeners, uh, because this will be the last episode of the Consumer Podcast for until the end of the year. Um, as I've announced last week, uh, there's a bit too much travel coming up, and so we will be taking an early break from this podcast, but you can still continue to listen to the Fun Policed, uh, Fun Policed, well, that also, but Fun Policed uh, uh, podcast series, uh, episode four and uh, uh, and five uh, still uh, still coming out. So you have uh, you have that to listen to. And uh, and I hope you, you enjoy that podcast and rate it favorably and continue to follow us. Uh, and also stay subscribed to that channel because uh, there might be upcoming series in the future and you do want to keep uh, notified of that. I am joined today uh, in co-hosting this episode by Fabio Fernandez. How's it going in Milan, Fabio? Oh, very well, Bill. Thanks for having me again. It's been a while since we did that last time, I think, maybe a couple of months. So yeah, it's to be here again. It's been a while. Yeah, I, I do try and switch it up between the different formats. And, you know, with this podcast series, it's really been, like, difficult. Like, running two podcasts at the time is is a whole different ballpark. I mean, also because, like, Fun Police is just, like, a different format. So it just requires editing on a very different level, while this is more more conversational. Um, yeah, also, no, congratulations it's... on your new podcast. I heard it. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, I've been... been quite a fan we are in episode two right so next week episode three um and it's growing it's a five-part series right it's a five-part series and actually because we pre-record this episode three will already be out by the time people listen to this so uh, people can already enjoy that episode three on harm reduction and so uh, yeah we have great experts there and uh, yeah i think i think this is a format we should explore more but of course uh, it's getting people used to the idea of like having a story mode right this you know i want this to be able to be listened to like the way you would watch a documentary and that's a format that's not as prominent uh, and so i i wanted to have that uh, out there as well i'm i'm glad you enjoyed it i really appreciate it and yeah, so I before is because um, I, I recorded an interview as well. So we're just going to play that first, uh, which is my conversation with Fred Röder at uh, the Consumer Choice Center about sustainable aviation fuels. Um, so he has some uh, interesting things to say about that. So let's play that first. We're here with Fred Roder, Managing Director of the Consumer Choice Center. And in an effort to decarbonize uh, international transport, the European Union is trying to move uh, away from the uh, classic kerosene that uh, that is used in uh, in airplanes and move to sustainable sustainable aviation fuel. And Fred, you just published a piece uh, on this in Parliament Magazine, and I was curious if you could fill us in. What is the debate currently on sustainable aviation fuels? Where are we, and what is the EU trying to achieve? Hi, Bill. So there's the aim to figure out how the aviation industry can be more green. Uh, I know you and I have done a lot of work on aviation and it's often being shown as the dirty child of uh, global greenhouse gases. If that's actually true is another question, but there's a clear policy goal now also leading towards uh, COP28, which starts at the end of next week, to tackle greenhouse gas emissions uh, produced by the aviation industry. And they are nascent technologies to uh, dilute traditional kerosene and add biofuels, but also synthetic fuels to the mix. 
the European Union actually just uh, in November this year decided to make a mix of 2% of all kerosene of planes departing the European Union uh, make it mandatory that 2% are from bio or synthetic fuels, which right now will be mainly biofuels because synthetic fuels are not really there yet. Um, and this is a policy objective of the European Union. Now, the problem is that biofuels tend to be three to four times more expensive than traditional kerosene. And um, that is even in times of fairly high kerosene prices. So these fuels are definitely not competitive yet. And uh, what I looked at is assuming the EU is successful with enforcing this regulation and currently looks like it, what that would mean for consumers and the industry, but especially for consumers, because ultimately we consumers always bear the price of regulation. And um, it leads definitely to an increase of prices. But then what's also interesting is that if you actually want to use biofuels, sustainable aviation fuels, how they're called, stuff, um, as a substitute of some parts of the kerosene, um, you need to have a very agnostic approach to what you use there. So the aim is not to use uh, bioproducts that would otherwise end up in our supermarket shelves, because there was a mistake made about a decade ago when it came to like gasoline, that suddenly food prices went up because there were subsidies to use things that otherwise could end up in the food supply chain to put them in our cars and surprise <laughs> food got more expensive, especially that's global food prices, which are especially have uh, ramifications for low and middle income countries where consumers are very vulnerable to food price increases. Um, now, one of the most efficient biofuels or products we can use for biofuels are actually derivatives from palm oil production. So things that are it's not palm oil per se, but waste products and there are a couple of actually European companies that are very good in isolating these and creating sustainable aviation fuels for it. Now, the interesting thing is the same people who advocate against aviation in general and say we need to use sustainable aviation fuels are usually also the same people who have advocated for the last 20 years in Europe for full ban on palm oil. So uh, what I basically just try to show is, well, You've you got to pick one thing. Do you want to decarbonize or partially decarbonize the aviation industry? Or do you want to hold up your old mantras that you do not want to import palm oil products from Southeast Asia and West Africa? Um, and this is something there needs to be some rationalization and awakening among these green activists and policymakers that always come with green deals. Yes, there are some partial solutions to the problems you see but they also require things you don't like. It's a bit similar to nuclear energy. You know, the same people usually who advocate against greenhouse emissions and want to switch off all fossil fuels also have a problem with nuclear energy. Ah, but photovoltaics and windmills will not do the trick to uh, electrify and energize an industrialized country. And um, you could see that with Germany where basically um, the... the uh, switching off nuclear power at the end of the day led to more greenhouse emissions because now it's like a coal-driven energy market uh, or nuclear power is being imported. And uh, the same mistake should not be made with uh, sustainable aviation fuels. fuels. So if you actually want this, uh, you should be more open to what can actually be used for sustainable aviation fuels. And that was kind of the 
exercise I went through. And and to have one more question in before we end the segment, this ambitious goal of getting to seventy percent in within a certain timeline, seventy percent of the, the the input there. Do you think that's realistic the way it's set up right now? What do you think the rule book should be? I mean, because you say we should have technology neutrality. If that doesn't happen, would it be better to scrap those goals or you know put in changes that account for 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 the for the for the conditions that you would set? I mean, if politicians think their voters are so concerned about this issue, businesses can offer flights with more with a higher percentage of sustainable aviation fuels. These will be more expensive, and consumers who are very conscious about this can book these flights. Right? This is like in my opinion, the most technology neutral and pro-consumer choice approach. Uh, these two percent will probably be realistic. Um, they will be a nuisance for the aviation industry, but I mean, they also want to show that they're a bit greener. So I think they will go with this. Going up to seventy percent, if you look at the current discrepancies or differences of cost of kerosene and sustainable aviation fuels, is totally unrealistic. I also talked to some people in the aviation industry that are very environmentally conscious people, but they say, well, you know. Um, flight from London to New York and coach these days costs between 500 and 1,000 euros. Um, that will be then probably between 1,500 and 3,000 euros. I mean, fuel is not the only cost point on a flight ticket, but it's, it's especially when you have high fuel prices can be up to 50% of what you pay for a plane ticket. And that is probably not realistic. So we need to have more innovation in there and see if we can get anywhere uh, with sustainable aviation fuels. But um, right now it's it's even making these 2% realistic by having a bit open approach to, okay, what waste products do we have? What organic waste products do we have that will not be consumed otherwise? Ah, and palm oil is actually one of the things where, where the waste products can be used for fairly potent uh, biofuels uh, because kerosene is a very potent fuel. Right? It's, it's, um, it's needed to jet turbines on and, and keep us in this air as long as we want to be in the air. Um, but in general, skeptical of all these timelines and plans by then and so on. So when you see that a bit with the internal combustion engine, these bends by 2030 that already a lot of countries like the UK start pushing this back. Yeah. So well, it's always nice to make these goals for someone in 20 years because someone else then needs to push it back yeah well it definitely uh, a lot more conversation will happen on those targets it has a, a tendency of going back to council and parliament and then being reevaluated later we've seen that on agriculture i think this is one of those issues where the same might happen as well well thank you so much fred for your uh, insights thank you bill and so now let's move to our conversations and i wanted to start us off fabio uh, this this week with the news on glyphosate so I did mention this last week in the episode, uh, glyphosate has been renewed for another 10 years. And this might, this always seems a bit strange to people how this thing happened. Because in the weeks leading up to these votes, these reauthorizations of this pesticide called glyphosate, there's always so much noise. There's European Parliament resolutions, uh, people are voting uh, on it, saying that uh, it is a dangerous uh, uh, chemical. And then uh, individual member states say, well, you know, it shouldn't be reauthorized. And then it always sort of ends up being reauthorized. And I think it's an interesting process here. Maybe to just explain this to the listeners, what happens with uh, glyphosate is that it needs a reauthorization, a political reauthorization. 
um, in order to be able to be used in agriculture. And what happens here is that uh, the European Food Safety Authority, which is the regulator, looks at is this chemical safe or not? And then it makes an assessment. And every single assessment always finds that it is not a problem for human health, which has not stopped many environmental organizations to say that it does anyway. And they base themselves on a hazard-based uh, 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 risk assessment in which they say that it can cause cancer. Now, uh, there was this, you know, I, I like to quote this, the, the German Ministry for Risk Assessment, they did an analysis and what they said is that, for instance, if there's glyphosate residue, residue in beer, you need to drink a thousand liters of beer a day for that to actually negatively affect you, by which standard uh, the glyphosate is not your biggest problem. So this is really like a hazard versus risk kind of a confusion that happens. And now it seems that glyphosate was indeed renewed because there was no... Um, majority for the rejection. Uh, you know, France and Italy had actually ended up abstaining in the vote. And uh, and so the European Commission decided to reauthorize for 10 years. So I guess in 10 years time, in the year 2033, we'll have the same uh, debate uh, again. I know that in Italy, I see, this is interesting to me, because I would have under, I would have assumed that the Italian government um, would be uh, would be pro reauthorization outright, but it seems that there was also some some pushback. Fabio, I mean, you live in Italy. To what extent is sort of the farming community an an, an influential um, uh, lobbying uh, actor in, in in politics? Do they do they have a lot of um, a lot of weight? So yes, they do. Uh, Italy is a very important country in the European Union in terms of food production, uh, along with uh, France and other countries that drive basically uh, the EU economy in terms of agriculture, uh, also uh, Spain, Portugal. Uh, but I think we need to take a step back because uh, maybe the decision of Italy not uh, outright supporting the renewal is more of a strategic view in terms of looking how Europe is going and how the world is going in 2023 and moving forward to 2024. So we know that we have wars going around. Uh, the war in Ukraine is still going on. And we talked here on the podcast how that war impacted and influenced Europe in terms of uh, food production and in terms of a real strategy from the European Union in where we're going to get our grains, uh, how we can support Ukraine to get some of the production that we need because Europe uh, cannot allow itself to, uh, to be not dependent in other countries. So it's impossible in terms of uh, policy, in terms of the, the size of Europe, uh, in terms of the, the number of, of uh, citizens that live in the European and the Schengen area. Uh, they cannot per permit themselves not to use some kind of chemical, some kind of fertilizer, some kind of uh, technological advancement in the field to uh, increase the yields uh, for food production. So glyphosate is very important. The European Union knows that. Uh, many countries, I don't, I don't see any uh, right-minded politician banning glyphosate in the short term because it's extremely important for food production. It literally put food on the table for millions of people in Europe and also elsewhere around the world. Um, so I think the, the point that Italy is trying to make is just trying to be a little bit uh, political and trying to um, see how things go because there is pressure, of course, and I see that happening all around uh, Europe. As you said, there are those organizations that want to outright ban uh, any kind of technology in the field. We recently learned that the Farm to Fork 
uh, is basically uh, done and gone. Uh, probably they're going to try to revise that in a couple of years because uh, those green environmentalists are always trying to push that agenda. So we have those also locally here in Italy. We have those organizations, those people that are trying to push for outright ban. Uh, but Italy has uh, a lot of uh, small producers like Europe. Europe is mainly about uh, medium to small producers, uh, farmers. Uh, so it's different from, for example, Brazil, different from the United States, different from China. We usually they have like big uh, farms that are producing a lot of food, a lot of uh, grains, a lot of uh, cattle. Uh, so it's a little bit different in Europe. You need to take into consideration those small producers. And it's very important for them to increase their yield, not only for for, for them to, to make some kind of living out of farming, which is also one of the, the core uh, points in Europe and in and the society in Europe, but also uh, how they can produce more, more, more food to put into the table of European citizens. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I was just listening to one of the interviews that was given by a farmer in the Netherlands where they try to do a nitrogen, nitrous oxide reduction. And one of the farmers said, look, if you if you want us to use less input, you will need to give us more land. And this is a super interesting perspective here, because when you lose in efficiency because you don't use certain technology, what you end up needing is more land. Uh, so you need to cut down more uh, trees, uh, get rid of forestry, and then increase the size of the land. And I think this is some, something, for instance, I mean, you're from Brazil, so you, you probably know about this. I mean, the, the criticism towards Brazil when it comes to reducing the amount of uh, the Amazon uh, rainforest, if Brazil actually farmed in the same way that Europe did, it would have to almost double the amount it is currently doing in terms of deforestation. It's because of the efficient model uh, that Brazil uses compared to Europe in, in, in its agricultural practices, that it needs a lot less uh, resource input. And that's because it has legal gene editing and because it has the authorization of a lot of uh, crop protection chemicals that have already been outlawed uh, in the European Union. And of course, the farmers are complaining because they're right. Like, I mean, if you, if you say you can't use a certain crop protection chemical, but then the people that uh, Im that you import from, right, that, that they can, then they are at a competitive disadvantage. Now, of course, some people say, well, then we'll have to use protectionism in order to prevent that. But ultimately, then you end up with this idea that the European Union policy model should be essentially globalized, right? Unless the entire world operates in the exact same way the European Union does, they can't trade with us. And I think that's not a very feasible method of, of, of doing this. Exactly. Comes, yeah. And ultimately, the consumers pay the price for that, because if you decrease the yield, it means less food being produced, which means that people are still buying the same amount or even more of those uh, foods that are produced in the in farming. But uh, if it's not available or less is available, uh, the prices go up. This is the free market uh, principle. So I think Europe knows that uh, and politicians are trying to... Um, make those those organizations happy trying to please them a little bit but at, at the end they know that if they do something drastic as banning uh any type of pesticide or any type of fertilizer uh that's ultimately what's going to happen and uh, we already have a lot of inflation inflation is still hunting europe and elsewhere in the world it's a consequence still of covid19 um so uh there there's a choice to be made and i think they they, they did the right thing Props also to the European People's Party and the European Parliament, which ultimately uh, made sure that the uh, Pesticide Reduction Act, uh, the cornerstone of the Farm to Folk strategy, 
uh, well, they essentially nuked it, right? Because the what the EPP did is it put in so many amendments that the text was ended up being so bad, let's say, quote unquote, in the eyes of the Greens that they voted down the text last week in the European Parliament. And this means that, uh, well, essentially the farm to fork strategy is void and that could actually lead us to uh, to say that the European Green Deal as such is void. And then it is up for, um, well, usually we say consumers to decide, but it will also be up to voters to decide because we have European elections next year. And then the priorities of a new European Commission will be outlined uh, through, through that vote uh, uh, for the European Parliament. So... We, we might see some significant changes here, and, and it's an exciting time because what we've seen is that um, sort of farmers and consumers feeling the pressure of inflation, but also the pressure of overbearing regulatory burden has political consequences. It happened in the Netherlands in provincial elections, and, and you see the ripple effects where political parties in Europe are now trying to coin themselves as the farmers' parties are standing up for the farmers, because politically you rarely win against farmers, right? I mean, that's just been a political rule in general. Uh, people have a lot of sympathies for farmers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's fascinating where the European Green Deal is practically dead and the designer of the European Green Deal is now trying to become prime minister in the Netherlands uh, because after the vote that happened last week, Franz Timmermans now trying to be prime minister with a coalition that will probably require three, four parties. Uh, it's, it's it's interesting how that goes. I mean, you, you, we went from 2020, this announcement of this European Green Deal is going to you know, change everything to the impact assessments that said it's going to impoverish all of us to... Well, maybe you can be prime minister of the Netherlands. It's, it, it can be politics can be a real fall from grace. Yeah, exactly, and that just proves that politicians are always thinking about themselves and not about the the people that elected them or their countries. Uh, so they're just thinking about their their next post, their next position, and the next election. So, uh, yeah, full cycle. It doesn't well. It doesn't prevent them once in a while to, from doing the right thing, but we'll 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 see how that goes. And speaking about politicians not doing the right thing, that gives us a fantastic segue into the next story, Fabio, and that is the uh, the, the latest scandal in Portugal. I mean, honestly, in Portugal, honestly, at this point, if you said uh, uh, there's a scandal in government, people would have to ask you which one. There have been three today, uh, so it's easy to lose track of this. We talked previously a bit about uh, with with one of our guests about uh, scandals in Portugal. Can you fill us in? What's what's the news there? What's going on politically in, in Portugal? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll try to just be a little bit tactical here and not to uh, uh, say things that might prove wrong in the long run because things are still going on. And uh, as you said, a lot of scandals all the time. Uh, and Portugal, I, I don't think it wasn't known uh, in the past as a, a place where corruption thrived. Uh, for example, as you would hear from Italy or Spain or other countries uh, like that, especially because it's a very small country. But recently, uh, things got a little bit ugly in, in Portugal because of corruption scandals. And everything started last year when they hired uh, a lady, a woman, to be uh, part of the top company. Uh, her contract was to, uh, supposed to, to last for two years. Uh, she was then released for her position uh, and then hired in a government position, uh, in a government role within the socialist government uh, with the prime minister of Portugal. Uh, uh, just, just for the listeners who don't know, TAP, that is the, the, the state-owned airline exactly. uh, of, of Portugal, right? 
Exactly. And then uh, what happened is that a couple of months later, they find out that she was paid a very handsome uh Savage uh, plan for for leaving the position before uh, the two years that she was supposed to to be to be working there. Since she was fired from Top Airlines, uh, she then moved to the government. Uh, that payment was the sum of something around uh, half a million euros in severance, which is a lot of money, especially if you talk about Portugal, which is one of the poorest uh, European countries uh, in terms of uh, how how much money they make and. Uh, cost of living. So it's a very handsome uh, payment for severance for someone that worked for basically a couple of months in that company. And that was enough for to create a, a kind of a crisis and especially the way the government handled that crisis. So a lot of critique to the prime minister, Antonio Costa, on the way that he handled that whole situation, hiring someone and paying a handsome uh, severance package for someone that, that they basically stole from, from a, a, a government or a state-owned company. Uh, and kind of the discussion between the prime minister and the president were done in the public sphere uh, uh, through interviews to uh, press releases. So that also uh, kind of deeped a little bit more the, the whole tension between the government and uh, the president because all those things were done publicly. Uh, so the situation was not uh, already good by the end of last year, the beginning of this year, with that whole situation with top airlines. But that uh, was even worsened in the last couple of months when there was um, a suspicion of corruption that was happening uh, in within the government, uh, specifically on lithium mine concessions uh, that were funded by the European Parliament, the European Union, in the green energy projects. So basically, they were doing those concessions in the northern part of Portugal for lithium mines uh, that would be used uh, for, for the energy plan and also to sustain Spain because uh, Portugal exports a lot of their energy also to Spain because the countries are very close together and they are very uh, tightly politically um, uh, joined together as well, uh, a long history between those two countries. So they received European funding for that. And the there was those scandals that those funds was misused. Uh, there were some preferences in hiring uh, some of the, uh, the concessions and the companies that were involved in this concession. Uh, so that sparked a new uh, kind of um, whole investigation where a judge uh, uh, sent out people to investigate and also to go into the, the government, go into the house of the uh, members of the, the ministry. And, 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 and that uh, also led to the arrest of one, uh, one person, uh, which was the prime minister's chief of staff uh, during those raids and uh, during uh, that, that happened during, in public buildings. Uh, so that led on November 7th to the prime minister, Antonio Costa, to step down. He asked the, the president to step down. Uh, he's from the socialist uh, party. And uh, Portugal is very socialist and, and in, in their whole politics, uh, liberal uh, parties or more conservative parties uh, haven't been in government for a long, long time. Uh, it's very hard for them to have any kind of opposition because the whole country is structured that way, the same way more or less as Spain is also uh, structured that way. Um, so it was a, a whole, uh, not only a whole 
scandal in terms of the scandal itself and their relationship with the president, but also in terms of how politics in Portugal are going to move forward from that whole scandal since the, the Socialist Party is the biggest party and was in government uh, for, for, for the past uh, year or so. So uh, we need to see it. We're going to uh, invoke new elections uh, and we need to see how, how this is going to, to move forward. But investigations is still going on uh, and 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 the ex-prime minister, uh, he said that he's confident that uh, people won't find anything that it's uh, irregular on, on the things that how he handled the whole situation. Yeah, it reminds me of the, um, was it the Richard Nixon press conference where he goes, I'm not a crook. No, people deserve to know whether their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And as well, we'll see about that. But um, well, first of all, thank you, Fabio, for filling us in there on the background. It is um, it is it is a fascinating one because a lot of people don't really I mean in general we don't think about Portugal an awful lot maybe it's because of its location it's just very far away and we think all is dandy in in Portugal Spain is usually the country that has more political unrest let's say uh, compared compared to Portugal at least in, in recent history um, what I think is fascinating about the story is that um, the government, there are no snap election. I mean, the Netherlands, where I currently spend a lot of my time, I mean, it took a minor disagreement about migration numbers for the government to fall and Ritter to say, well, I guess that's it. And he'd been in power for a while. Uh, and here, and in Portugal, it seems that they're really clinging on to power for as long as possible. And it, it, it has, a, this happens um, a lot when a, a single party has been, in government for a bit too long. I remember in Luxembourg, the the the, the 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 Christian Social People's Party had been in government for so long, and when the scandal came around, it seemed inconceivable. Of course, for the for themselves, but also even in media and the population that there could be another government because there was a. I mean, I was a generation that had been growing up. I mean, Jean Claude Juncker was prime minister when I was born. And he was still prime minister when I voted for the first time at age 18, right? So there's a whole generation of people that cannot fathom the idea of somebody else being in charge. And, and it seems to me, and maybe you correct me on this, that this is maybe also partially the problem with a, a, a government that hasn't fundamentally changed in its, you know, sometimes even with the people, but also in its whole ideology and approach um, in, 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 in well over a decade. Uh, is that part of the problem as well here? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, Portugal wants to be different. So the president of Portugal wants to be different, from example, from Italy, where you have a government that lasts usually on average 13 months. So every 13 months we are called into elections because there is no uh, majority in the parliament to support the prime minister. Uh, so Portugal wants to uh, is still... Uh, dissolve the parliament and, and call for, for elections when it's extremely necessary in terms of keeping the political uh, stability of the country uh, as long as they can. And I think that was the intent of the president. Uh, but then we came to corruption involving EU-funded money uh, that when uh, they draw the line and they said, okay, that's that's uh, we cannot have that because without the European Union, without the credibility that we have from the European Union, uh, Europe is, it, it basically fund a lot of the projects in Portugal and those smaller countries. So it's necessary for, for them to, to keep that uh, integrity. And even if there were uh, some kind of... Um, misusing or or any kind of corruption in the government uh they want to to 
at least uh, being good terms with the European uh, Union. So I think that that may be one of the reasons. As I just said, uh, people try to to hang and keep in, in power as as much as they can. Uh, that also leads for them to creating a machine of corruption in the background that we we will only find out when the government is dissolved or when the government changes. Uh, so that's also one of the downsides of keeping uh, the same party or the same government there for so long because uh, they, they kind of can create that a whole machinery of corruption and, and we don't, don't even know about it. Portugal definitely has um, a track record of, of, of difficulties of complying with sort of the budgetary measures of the European Union. It, uh, I mean, I was just I was just pulling this up because I couldn't remember exactly what it was over. But uh, Portugal, Portugal urged to reduce energy support measures by the European Union. Again, uh, uh, after several reminders by Brussels, the the uh, the Portuguese government has been told that essentially uh, the subsidization method they're currently using to support people pay their energy bills has not been properly uh, justified or explained uh, to the authorities uh, at the European Union. And, and I mean, Portugal, um, I mean, outside of just the structural problems of even pre-COVID was not respecting the debt and deficit rules uh, of, of the European Union, even though you could say a lot of countries are not doing that. But it's definitely not a country that has even strived to limit the amount of expenditure it has been uh, it has been having. And, and apparently because it has been rewarded by the voters each time that there hasn't been significant changes. I wonder, though, because I am familiar with the fact that not just is there a center-right uh, opposition. There is also a far right opposition in Portugal that is uh, that, that 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 could that that could uh, get to power. And you know, it's something that we've seen in Netherlands, where people are frustrated with sort of the the, the political inaction that it, the, the pendulum could swing quickly. I'm not sure if Portugal is naturally inclined to have that type of reaction. Uh, do you do you think it's a it's it's a it's it's a it's a situation scenario that could happen that Portugal adds itself to the list of, you know, more more far right uh, rather than center right type uh, type majorities. Is that is that plausible in Portugal from your knowledge? No, so I don't think that that would happen uh, in the short term. I think that we see this happening all around the world. We have Argentina recently moving for uh, more right wing. Uh, kind of, of political spectrum, uh, even though they have been uh, in the left for, for so many years, I think 30 years of left-wing policy in Argentina that completely dis destroyed the country. I don't see that happening in uh, Portugal. I see uh, things moving a little bit more centered, which for uh, Portugal politics, it's very right-wing. So I think that the pendulum uh, moves in that direction because we want a little bit more conservative people uh, in government. But even though those conservative people, I, I think they're going to be very centered in the type of policies and, and politics. Uh, so I, I don't see that happening in Portugal in, in the short term. Uh, but we, we saw that happen in other in other countries. So if there there's someone that uh, very populist that comes around uh, and persuade the voters, um, uh, I don't see that happening for the next election, but maybe in a couple of years, I, I completely see that that's a possibility. And uh, one more thing I want to talk about that is uh, how th that whole corruption, especially with the top uh, airline, shows to us once again that uh, just giving, just having a state-owned company uh, has so many drawbacks. Uh, you have the efficiency uh 
thing because they, they are less effective than a private company. You have uh, taxpayers funding uh, all, all the things that happen into this company. For example, paying the severance from for someone that uh, was released for their job. They need to pay the severance for that. And who pays that? Who pays that is the taxpayer. Uh, so there are so many drawbacks, but corruption is also another thing that always happens with state-owned uh, companies. Uh, that happened in Brazil with Petrobras. Uh, that happened with uh, a lot of companies around the world because they use the the, the companies as political uh, part of the political machine. They they uh, pick someone, they put them into uh, director of some area in that company to to give a favor to another party so they can win votes in the parliament. So that exchange using uh, state-owned companies happens everywhere, uh, and there's an, this is another. Um, another argument that we can make about uh, completely privatizing those companies and stop giving uh, money to companies that are state-owned. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an incredible. When I looked into sort of how TAP operates, it's incredibly inefficient and it has also like, needed bailout money, of course, during COVID. And it, it feels to me that, I mean, this is airline-specific, but I think during COVID, when a lot of airlines were struggling, we should have used the opportunity of having actual... Like, changes here because sort of it's the same it's the same few companies um uh you know that, that that are gobbling up more and more i mean lufthansa is a good example of a company that really benefits from failed state-owned carriers uh, i mean ita airways so i think they're about to about to suggest a deal there to the european commission of, of gobbling up ita airways in, in italy uh, by by lufthansa and then you have those state-owned airlines, which it, it seems to me is a bit of a sense of national pride. And I think that goes also goes back to this whole state-owned enterprises, because there's one part, which is the argument of fairness. And, you know, when the market isn't efficient enough, the state-owned enterprise can solve that. And also this, this idea of like national pride, like this is ours, no other country can buy this because we own it. And then it's and then it ends up being self-defeating because you erect those arguments as sort of like this is our pride and joy, and then it's riddled with corruption, political appointees on the board. And then, well, you know, if, if you made it into the national representation of what the country is about, and then it's full of corruption and inefficiencies, well, then what does that say about the country, right? I mean, I think this is the ultimate the, the, the ultimate problem with those state-owned enterprises. I can I can see that it can be well managed. I mean, um, if you take the example of the, the railways in the Netherlands, it's essentially it's run like a private company. The government owns it, but it's run like a private company. It's fairly efficient as a result of that. And now because of EU rules, we also have competition on the rail from other carriers. But you, you, there's a lot of parameters where essentially you, as a government, you need to take a hands-off approach. If you still want to own it, but then run it efficiently, you, you, you cannot get involved and you cannot say... Hey, wasn't this also a thing where, the, where one of the ministers or the president delayed a flight by tap because they were they they tried to catch it or something? There was there was something going on there. I remember when we had George Tejera on the on the podcast, he he mentioned something like that uh, as well. It's 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 such it's such a problem when you have so much influence over a, an important carrier. And um, yeah. But I don't think privatization is going to be on the menu anytime soon in Portugal, right? No, no, absolutely not. But uh, but that opens up for for new scandals to erupt in the future, and uh, we know how they misuse uh, state-owned companies everywhere. So uh, that's probably going to happen again. So we'll never run out of content. Well, that's about the time we have uh, today, uh, Fabio. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people follow you on the socials? 
Uh, Defaria e Silva is my Instagram, uh, and you can listen to the podcast Liberdade para Escolher, which we talk about uh, uh, politics from a, a Brazilian Portuguese perspective. Fantastic for all those Portuguese speakers out there. And thank you so much for the listeners for bearing with me throughout 2023. We will be back absolutely in January with, I think, some new jingles and music. As I think some people have been a bit tired of me using Billy Joel's pressure there for a bit too long. It's been about three years that we've been running this podcast. So uh, I think there might be some changes coming up there in the new year. So stay tuned and hit that notification bell so you see the episodes as they come out. Thank you so much, Fabio, and uh, see you in the new year. Thank you, Bill, and enjoy the holidays, especially the listeners. You have to learn to pace